Section 7 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1 by James Boswell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. His Reluctance to Go to Church, I Type 20. The history of his mind as to religion is an important article. I have mentioned the early impressions made upon his tender imagination by his mother who continued her pious care with assiduity but in his opinion not with judgment sunday said he was a heavy day to me when i was a boy my mother confined me on that day and made me read the whole duty of man from a great part of which i could derive no instruction when for instance i had read the chapter on theft which from my infancy i had been taught was wrong I was no more convinced that theft was wrong than before, so there was no accession of knowledge. A boy should be introduced to such books by having his attention directed to the arrangement, to the style, and other excellencies of composition, that the mind being thus engaged by an amusing variety of objects may not grow weary. Law's Serious Call Anno Domini, seventeen twenty nine, Johnson grounded in religion, I type twenty. He communicated to me the following particulars upon the subject of his religious progress. I fell into an inattention to religion or an indifference about it in my ninth year. The church at Lichfield, in which we had a seat, wanted reparation. Footnote. On Easter Sunday, 1716, during service, some pieces of stone from the spire of St. Mary's fell on the roof of the church. The congregation, thinking that the steeple was coming down, in their alarm, broke through the windows. Johnson, we may well believe, witnessed the scene. The church was pulled down, and the new one was opened in December, 1721, Harwoods, Lichfield. End of footnote. So I was to go and find a seat in other churches, and having bad eyes and being awkward about this, I used to go and read in the fields on Sunday. This habit continued till my fourteenth year, and still I find a great reluctance to go to church. Footnote. September the 23rd, 1771. I have gone voluntarily to church on the weekday, but few times in my life. I think to mend. April the ninth, seventeen seventy three. I hope in time to take pleasure in public worship. April the sixth, seventeen seventy seven. I have this year omitted church on most Sundays, intending to supply the deficients in the week, so that I owe twelve attendances on worship i will make no more such superstitious stipulations which entangle the mind with unbidden obligations in the following passage in the life of milton johnson no doubt is thinking of himself in the distribution of his hours there was no hour of prayer either solitary or with his household omitting public prayers he omitted all that he lived without prayer can hardly be affirmed his studies and meditations were an habitual prayer 
the neglect of it in his family was probably a fault for which he condemned himself and which he intended to correct but that death as too often happens intercepted his reformation End of footnote. i then became a sort of lax talker against religion for i did not much think against it and this lasted till i went to oxford where it would not be suffered footnote. we may compare with this a passage in vera Kundalus's letter in the rambler number one hundred and fifty seven though many among my fellow-students at the university took the opportunity of a more remiss discipline to gratify their passions yet virtue preserved her natural superiority and those who ventured to neglect were not suffered to insult her oxford at this date was somewhat wayward in her love for religion whitefield records i had no sooner received the sacrament publicly on a weekday at st mary's but i was set up as a mark for all the polite students that knew me to shoot at by this they knew that i was commenced methodist for though there is a sacrament at the beginning of every term at which all especially the seniors are by statute obliged to be present yet so dreadfully has that once faithful city played the harlot that very few masters and no undergraduates but the methodists attended upon it i daily underwent some contempt at college some have thrown dirt at me others by degrees took away their pay from me tireman's whitefield story the quaker visiting oxford in seventeen thirty one says of all places wherever i have been the scholars of oxford were the rudest most giddy and unruly rabble and most mischievous story's journal End of footnote. when at oxford i took up law's serious call to a holy life footnote. john wesley who was also at oxford writing of about this same year says meeting now with mr law's christian perfection and serious call the light flowed in so mightily upon my soul that everything appeared in a new view whitefield writes before i went to the university i met with mr law's serious call but had not then money to purchase it soon after my coming up to the university seeing a small edition of it in a friend's hand i soon procured it god worked powerfully upon my soul by that and his other excellent treatise upon christian perfection tyman's whitefield johnson called the serious call the finest piece of hortatory theology in any language post seventeen seventy a few months before his death he said william law wrote the best piece of paranetic divinity but william law was no reasoner post june the ninth seventeen eighty four law was the tutor of gibbon's father and he died in the house of the historian's aunt in describing the serious call gibbon says his precepts are rigid but they are founded on the gospel his satire is sharp but it is drawn from the knowledge of human life 
and many of his portraits are not unworthy of the pen of la bruyere if he finds a spark of piety in his reader's mind he will soon kindle it to a flame End of footnote. expecting to find it a dull book as such books generally are and perhaps to laugh at it but i found law quite an overmatch for me and this was the first occasion of my thinking in earnest of religion after i became capable of rational inquiry footnote mrs piozzi has given a strange fantastical account of the original of dr johnson's belief in our most holy religion at the age of ten years his mind was disturbed by scruples of infidelity which preyed upon his spirits and made him very uneasy the more so as he revealed his uneasiness to none being naturally as he said of a sullen temper and reserved disposition he searched however diligently but fruitlessly for evidences of the truth of revelation and at length recollecting a book he had once seen boswell i suppose at five years old in his father's shop entitled de veritate religionis etc he began to think himself highly culpable for neglecting such a means of information and took himself severely to task for this sin adding many acts of voluntary and to others unknown penance the first opportunity which offered of course he seized the book with avidity but on examination not finding himself scholar enough to peruse its contents set his heart at rest and not thinking to inquire whether there were any english books written on the subject followed his usual amusements and considered his conscience as lightened of a crime he redoubled his diligence to learn the language that contained the information he most wished for but from the pain which guilt boswell namely having omitted to read what he did not understand had given him he now began to deduce the soul's immortality boswell a sensation of pain in this world being an unquestionable proof of existence in another which was the point that belief first stopped at and from that moment resolving to be a christian became one of the most zealous and pious ones our nation ever produced anecdotes this is one of the numerous misrepresentations of this lively lady which it is worth while to correct for if credit should be given to such a childish irrational and ridiculous statement of the foundation of dr johnson's faith in christianity how little credit will be due to it mrs piozzi seems to wish that the world should think dr johnson also under the influence of that easy logic stet pro ratione voluntas boswell on april the twenty eighth seventeen eighty three johnson said religion had dropped out of my mind it was at an early part of my life sickness brought it back and i hope i have never lost it since most likely it was the sickness and the long vacation of seventeen twenty nine mentioned ante end of footnote from this time forward religion was the predominant object of his thoughts footnote. in his life of milton writing of paradise lost he says but these truths are too important to be new 
they have been taught to our infancy, they have mingled with our solitary thoughts and familiar conversations, and are habitually interwoven with the whole texture of life. End of footnote. Though with the just sentiments of a conscientious Christian, he lamented that his practice of its duties fell far short of what it ought to be. This instance of a mind such as that of Johnson being first disposed by an unexpected incident to think with anxiety of the momentous concerns of eternity and of what he should do to be saved, footnote Acts chapter 16 verse 30, end of footnote, may forever be produced in opposition to the superficial and sometimes profane contempt that has been thrown upon those occasional impressions which it is certain many Christians have experienced, though it must be acknowledged that weak minds, from an erroneous supposition that no man is in a state of grace who has not felt a particular conversion, have in some cases brought a degree of ridicule upon them, a ridicule of which it is inconsiderate or unfair to make a general application. Johnson's Studies at Oxford, Anno Domini, 1729. How seriously Johnson was impressed with the sense of religion, even in the vigour of his youth, appears from the following passage in his Minutes Kept by Way of a Diary, September the 7th, 1736, footnote, September the 7th, Old Style, or September the 18th, New Style, end of footnote. I have this day entered upon my twenty-eighth year. Mayest thou, O God, enable me for Jesus Christ's sake to spend this in such a manner that I may receive comfort from it at the hour of death and in the day of judgment. Amen. His rapid reading and composition, I tout twenty. The particular course of his reading while at Oxford and during the time of vacation which he passed at home cannot be traced. Enough has been said of his irregular mode of study. He told me that from his earliest years he loved to read poetry, but hardly ever read any poem to an end, that he read Shakespeare at a period so early that the speech of the ghost in Hamlet terrified him when he was alone. Footnote. He that peruses Shakespeare looks round alarmed and starts to find himself alone. I was many years ago so shocked by Cordelia's death that I know not whether I ever endured to read again the last scenes of the play till I undertook to revise them as an editor. End of footnote. That Horace's odes were the compositions in which he took most delight, and that it was long before he liked his epistles and satires told me what he read solidly at Oxford was Greek, not the Grecian historians, but Homer and Euripides, and now and then a little epigram. Footnote. He told Mr. Wyndham that he had never read through the Odyssey completely. At college, he said, he had been very idle and neglectful of his studies. End of footnote. That the study of which he was the most fond was metaphysics but he had not read much even in that way. I always thought that he did himself injustice in his account of what he had read, 
and he must have been speaking with reference to the vast portion of study which is possible and to which a few scholars in the whole history of literature have attained for when i once asked him whether a person whose name i have now forgotten studied hard he answered no sir i do not believe he studied hard i never knew a man who studied hard i conclude indeed from the effects that some men have studied hard as bentley and clark trying him by that criterion upon which he formed his judgment of others we may be absolutely certain both from his writings and his conversation that his reading was very extensive dr adam smith than whom few were better judges on this subject once observed to me that johnson knew more books than any man alive he had a peculiar facility of seizing at once what was valuable in any book without submitting to the labour of perusing it from beginning to end Footnote. it may be questioned whether except his bible he ever read a book entirely through late in life if any man praised a book in his presence he was sure to ask did you read it through if the answer was in the affirmative he did not seem willing to believe it murphy's johnson page twelve it will be easy to show that johnson read many books right through though according to mrs piozzi he asked was there ever yet anything written by mere man that was wished longer by its readers excepting don quixote robinson crusoe and the pilgrim's progress nevertheless in murphy's statement there is some truth see what has been just stated by boswell that he hardly ever read any poem to an end and Pope's April the nineteenth, seventeen seventy three, and June the fifteenth, seventeen eighty four. To him might be applied his own description of Baretier. He had a quickness of apprehension and firmness of memory which enabled him to read with incredible rapidity, and at the same time to retain what he read, so as to be able to recollect and apply it. He turned over volumes in an instant and selected what was useful for his purpose. End footnote. He had, from the irritability of his constitution at all times, an impatience and hurry when he either read or wrote. A certain apprehension arising from novelty made him write his first exercise at college twice over. Footnote. See post, June the 15th, 1784, Mr. Wyndham records the following anecdote of Johnson's first declamation at college. Having neglected to write it till the morning of his being sick to repeat it, and having only one copy, he got part of it by heart while he was walking into the hall, and the rest he supplied as well as he could extempore. Mrs. Piozzi, recording the same anecdote, says that having given the copy into the hands of the tutor who stood to receive it as he passed he was obliged to begin by chance and continue on how he could a prodigious risk however said someone not at all exclaims johnson no man i suppose leaps at once into deep water who does not know how to swim End of 
but he never took that trouble with any other composition and we shall see that his most excellent works were struck off at a heat with rapid exertion Footnote. he told dr burney that he never wrote any of his works that were printed twice over dr burney's wonder at seeing several pages of his lives of the poets in manuscript with scarce a blot or erasure drew this observation from him malone he wrote forty-eight of the printed octavo pages of the life of savage at a sitting post february seventeen forty four and a hundred lines of the vanity of human wishes in a day post under february the fifteenth seventeen sixty six the ramblers were written in haste as the moment pressed without even being read over by him before they were printed post beginning of seventeen fifty in the second edition however he made corrections he composed rasselas in the evenings of one week post under january seventeen fifty nine the false alarm was written between eight o'clock on wednesday night and twelve o'clock on thursday night piozzi's anecdotes the patriot he says was called for on friday was written on saturday post november the twenty sixth seventeen seventy four end of footnote johnson's rooms in college anno domini seventeen twenty nine yet he appears from his early notes or memorandums in my possession to have at various times attempted or at least planned a methodical course of study according to computation of which he was all his life fond as it fixed his attention steadily upon something without and prevented his mind from preying upon itself footnote when mr johnson felt his fancy or fancied he felt it disordered his constant recurrence was to the study of arithmetic piozzi's anecdotes ethics or figures or metaphysical reasoning was the sort of talk he most delighted in ibid see post september the twenty fourth seventeen seventy seven end of footnote thus i find in his handwriting the number of lines in each of two of euripides tragedies of the georgics of virgil of the first six books of the aeneid of horace's art of poetry of three of the books of ovid's metamorphosis of some parts of theocritus and of the tenth satire of juvenal and a table showing at the rate of various numbers a day i suppose verses to be read what would be in each case the total amount in a week month and year Footnote. september the eighteenth seventeen sixty four i resolve to study the scriptures i hope in the original languages six hundred and forty verses every sunday will nearly comprise the scriptures in a year prayers and meditations seventeen seventy first sunday after easter the plan which i formed for reading the scriptures was to read six hundred verses in the old testament and two hundred in the new every week Ibid. End of footnote. no man had a more ardent love of literature or a higher respect for it than johnson his apartment in pembroke college was that upon the second floor over the gateway 
the enthusiasts of learning will ever contemplate it with veneration one day when he was sitting in it quite alone dr panting footnote, august the first seventeen fifteen this being the day on which the late queen anne died and on which george duke and elector of brunswick usurped the english throne there was very little rejoicing in oxford there was a sermon at st mary's by dr panting master of pembroke he is an honest gentleman his sermon took no notice at most very little of the duke of brunswick Hearn's remains end of footnote then master of the college whom he called a fine jacobite fellow overheard footnote the outside wall of the gateway tower forms an angle with the wall of the master's house so that any one sitting by the open window and speaking in a strong emphatic voice might have easily been overheard End of footnote. him uttering this soliloquy in his strong emphatic voice well i have a mind to see what is done in other places of learning i'll go and visit the universities abroad i'll go to france and italy i'll go to padua footnote goldsmith did go to padua and stayed there some months forster's goldsmith end of footnote and i'll mind my business for an athenian blockhead is the worst of all blockheads footnote i had this anecdote from dr adams and dr johnson confirmed it bramston in his man of taste has the same thought sure of all blockheads scholars are the worst boswell johnson's meaning however is that a scholar who is a blockhead must be the worst of all blockheads because he is without excuse but bramston in the assumed character of an ignorant coxcomb maintains that all scholars are blockheads on account of their scholarship james boswell jr there is i believe a spanish proverb to the effect that to be an utter fool a man must know latin a writer in notes and queries suggests that johnson had in mind acts chapter seventeen verse twenty one end of footnote johnson a frolicsome fellow i type twenty dr adams told me that johnson while he was at pembroke college was caressed and loved by all about him was a gay and frolicsome fellow and passed there the happiest part of his life footnote it was the practice in his time for a servitor by order of the master to go round to the rooms of the young men and knocking at the door to inquire if they were within and if no answer was returned to report them absent johnson could not endure this intrusion and would frequently be silent when the utterance of a word would have ensured him from censure and would join with others of the young men in the college in hunting as they called it the servitor who was thus diligent in his duty and this they did with the noise of pots and candlesticks singing to the tune of chevy chase the words in the old ballad to drive the deer with hound and horn hawkins whitefield writing a few years later says at this time satan used to terrify me much and threatened to punish me if i discovered his wiles 
it being my duty as servitor in my turn to knock at the gentlemen's rooms by ten at night to see who were in their rooms i thought the devil would appear to me at every stair i went up tyman's whitefield end of footnote but this is a striking proof of the fallacy of appearances and how little any of us know of the real internal state even of those whom we see most frequently for the truth is that he was then depressed by poverty and irritated by disease when i mentioned to him this account as given me by dr adams he said ah sir i was mad and violent it was bitterness which they mistook for frolic i was miserably poor and i thought to fight my way by my literature and my wit so i disregarded all power and all authority Footnote. perhaps his disregard of all authority was in part due to his genius still in its youth in his life of littleton he says the letters littleton's persian letters have something of that indistinct and headstrong ardour for liberty which a man of genius always catches when he enters the world and always suffers to cool as he passes forward End of footnote. dr adams anno domini seventeen thirty the bishop of dromore observes in a letter to me the pleasure he took in vexing the tutors and fellows has been often mentioned but i have heard him say what ought to be recorded to the honour of the present venerable master of that college the reverend william adams doctor of divinity who was then very young and one of the junior fellows that the mild but judicious expostulations of this worthy man whose virtue awed him and whose learning he revered made him really ashamed of himself no i fear said he i was too proud to own it i have heard from some of his co-temporaries that he was generally seen lounging at the college gate with a circle of young students round him whom he was entertaining with wit and keeping from their studies if not spiriting them up to rebellion against the college discipline which in his maturer years he so much extolled he very early began to attempt keeping notes or memorandums by way of a diary of his life i find in a parcel of loose leaves the following spirited resolution to contend against his natural indolence october seventeen twenty nine tantibus surdum posthac aurum obversorus i bid farewell to slope being resolved henceforth not to listen to her siren strains i have also in my possession a few leaves of another libellus or little book entitled annales in which some of the early particulars of his history are registered in latin a nest of singing birds Itar twenty one i do not find that he formed any close intimacies with his fellow collegians but dr adams told me that he contracted a love and regard for pembroke college which he retained to the last 
a short time before his death he sent to that college a present of all his works to be deposited in their library Footnote. dr hall formerly master of the college says certainly not all Croker. End of footnote. and he had thoughts of leaving to it his house at lichfield but his friends who were about him very properly dissuaded him from it and he bequeathed it to some poor relations footnote i would leave the interest of the fortune i bequeathed to a college to my relations and my friends for their lives it is the same thing to a college which is a permanent society whether it gets the money now or twenty years hence but i would wish to make my relations or friends feel the benefit of it post april seventeenth seventeen seventy eight hawkins life page five eighty two says that he meditated a device of his house to the corporation of that city for a charitable use but it being freehold he said i cannot live a twelvemonth and the last statute of mortmain stands in my way the same statute no doubt would have hindered the bequest to the college End of footnote. he took a pleasure in boasting of the many eminent men who had been educated at pembroke in this list are found the names of mr hawkins the poetry professor footnote. garrick refused to act one of hawkins's plays the poet towards the end of a long letter which he signed your much dissatisfied humble servant said after all sir i do not desire to come to an open rupture with you i wish not to exasperate but to convince i tender you once more my friendship and my play garrick correspondence sea post april the ninth seventeen seventy eight end of footnote mr shenstone sir william blackstone and others footnote see nash's history of worcestershire boswell to the list shall be added francis beaumont the dramatic writer sir thomas brown whose life johnson wrote sir james dyer chief justice of the king's bench lord chancellor harcourt john pym francis rouse the speaker of cromwell's parliament and bishop bonner wright some of these men belonged to the ancient foundation of broadgates hall which in sixteen twenty four was converted into pembroke college it is strange that boswell should have passed over sir thomas brown's name johnson in his life of brown says that he was the first man of eminence graduated from the new college to which the zeal or gratitude of those that love it most can wish little better than that it may long proceed as it began to this list nash adds the name of the reverend richard graves author of the spiritual quixote who took his degree of b a on the same day as whitefield whom he ridiculed in that romance End of footnote. not forgetting the celebrated popular preacher mr george whitefield of whom though dr johnson did not think very highly footnotes he post october the sixth seventeen sixty nine and boswell's hebrides august the fifteenth seventeen seventy three and a footnote it must be acknowledged that his eloquence was powerful his views pious and charitable his assiduity almost incredible 
and that since his death the integrity of his character has been fully vindicated being himself a poet johnson was peculiarly happy in mentioning how many of the sons of pembroke were poets adding with a smile of sportive triumph sir we are a nest of singing birds Footnote. in his life of shenstone he writes from school shenstone was sent to pembroke college in oxford a society which for half a century has been eminent for english poetry and elegant literature here it appears that he found delight and advantage for he continued his name in the book ten years though he took no degree johnson's name would seem to have been in like manner continued for more than eleven years and perhaps for the same reasons ante page fifty eight note hannah moore was at oxford in june seventeen eighty two during one of johnson's visits to dr adams you cannot imagine she writes with what delight dr johnson showed me every part of his own college after dinner he begged to conduct me to see the college he would let no one show it me but himself this was my room this shenstone's then after pointing out all the rooms of the poets who had been of his college in short said he we were a nest of singing birds here we walked there we played at cricket it may be doubted whether he ever played he ran over with pleasure the history of the juvenile days he passed there when we came into the common room we spied a fine large print of johnson framed and hung up that very morning with this motto and is not johnson ours himself a host under which stared you in the face from miss moore's sensibility hannah moore's memoirs at the end of the ludicrous analysis of pococcius quoted by johnson in the life of edmund smith are the following lines subito ad fatavo proficusquo laura bilis donandus prius vero pembrociensis voco ad certamen poeticum smith was at christchurch he seems to be mocking the neighbouring nest of singing birds End of dr taylor at christchurch anno domini seventeen thirty johnson's worn-out shoes itart twenty one he was not however blind to what he thought the defects of his own college and i have from the information of dr taylor a very strong instance of that rigid honesty which he ever inflexibly preserved taylor had obtained his father's consent to be entered of pembroke that he might be with his schoolfellow johnson with whom though some years older than himself he was very intimate this would have been a great comfort to johnson but he fairly told taylor that he could not in conscience suffer him to enter where he knew he could not have an able tutor he then made inquiry all round the university and having found that mr bateman of christchurch was the tutor of highest reputation taylor was entered at that college Footnote taylor matriculated on february the twenty fourth seventeen twenty nine 
Mr. Croker, in his note, has confounded him with another John Taylor, who matriculated more than a year later. Richard West, writing of Christchurch in 1735, says, Consider me very seriously here in a strange country inhabited by things that call themselves doctors and masters of art a country flowing with syllogisms and ale where horace and virgil are equally unknown gray's letters end of footnote mr bateman's lectures were so excellent that johnson used to come and get them at second hand from taylor till his poverty being so extreme that his shoes were worn out and his feet appeared through them he saw that this humiliating circumstance was perceived by the christchurch men and he came no more. Footnote. Si toga sudidula est, et rupta calceas alta pele patet. Or if the shoe be ripped, or patches put, Dryden, Juvenile, Satire 3, line 149. Johnson, in his London, in describing the blockhead's insults, while he mentions the tattered cloak passes over the ripped shoe perhaps the wound had gone too deep to his generous heart for him to bear even to think on it End of footnote. he was too proud to accept of money and somebody having set a pair of new shoes at his door he threw them away with indignation footnote. yet some have refused my bounties more offended with my quickness to detect their wants than pleased with my readiness to succour them rasselas chapter twenty five his savages distresses however afflictive never dejected him in his lowest state he wanted not spirit to assert the natural dignity of wit and was always ready to repress that insolence which is a superiority of fortune incited he never admitted any gross familiarities or submitted to be treated otherwise than as an equal his clothes were worn out and he received notice that at a coffee-house some clothes and linen were left for him but though the offer was so far generous it was made with some neglect of ceremonies which mr savage so much resented that he refused the present and declined to enter the house till the clothes that had been designed for him were taken away johnson's words end of footnote how must we feel when we read such an anecdote of samuel johnson his spirited refusal of an eleemosynary supply of shoes arose no doubt from a proper pride but considering his ascetic disposition at times as acknowledged by himself in his meditations and the exaggeration with which some have treated the peculiarities of his character i should not wonder to hear it ascribed to a principle of superstitious mortification as we are told by tersilinus in his life of st ignatius loyola that this intrepid founder of the order of jesuits when he arrived at goa after having made a severe pilgrimage through the eastern deserts persisted in wearing his miserable shattered shoes and when new ones were offered to him 
rejected them as an unsuitable indulgence. End of section 7